I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity, Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Club. And can I ask you something, Ashley? Of course, Claire. What is Celebrity Memoir Book Club? Well, Celebrity Memoir Book Club is a podcast. Cool. Where we shoot the shit about celebrities using their own words. And do we love these celebrities? Sometimes. And do we laugh at these celebrities? Every time. And is this a good-natured, friendly, empowering podcast? Empowering some. (laughs) To humpst. To humpst. (laughs) We empower worms. To Hell be yeah. their wormiest selves. Hell yeah. And who's a worm? The listeners and lovers of this podcast. Yeah. And so look, are we going to be nice all the time? No. Are we going to be funny most of the time? We try. Do we read for sure? I'm learning. And so my advice to you, listener, not yet worm convert, is if you're looking for a fun podcast where all they do is be nice to celebrities, keep looking. But if you're here to knock down some Richies... <laughs> If you're here to talk about the truth, which isn't always pretty, and our feelings, which are always correct, welcome. Yeah. Plow forward, my little worms. Ashley, yes, before Claire. we get cooking, of course, what would you have called this chapter of your memoir this past week? Okay. I would call this past week and into the ongoing week, I would call it into the next decade why little one how did you get that title (laughs) well you guys this coming sunday june 6th mark your calendars is my birthday and i will be turning 30 (laughs) (laughs) okay so here's the thing here's where i've been this last week i have been all over the place in my feelings about this great moment okay okay? and whether or not it is a great or important moment because I do feel like there's a lot of conversation from both sides of the aisle about whether or not being 30 is the end of the world and I think a lot of young people people in their 20s people in their teens they think 30 are you going to be the oldest person on the planet what's the record right now look it up Will they have their teeth? Don't know. Anyway, and then I think people, you won't. I mean, I won't have teeth, hopefully tomorrow. I mean, I'm praying. I'm praying to lose these suckers every day. I'm walking into bars looking for a fight. I'm going to take a pocky. I hate teeth. And then I think people on the other side of 30, they are another split crew where half of them are like, the day I turned 30 is the day I turned to dust. And then the other half are like, 30, that's when I finally learned myself and I got good at sex. Here's what I want to say about dust. Yeah. And this might not be scientifically true, but I do think dust sometimes finds itself in the mouth of an oyster and the oyster puts pressure on it and then the dust turns into a diamond. Is that true? Is that how diamonds get made? I think it's a pearl is what I meant. Pearl is my birthstone. Okay, so perfect. We'll go with pearl. I think either would have worked, but I do think that maybe your 20s turns you to dust. Your 30s will make you into a pearl. And in your 40s, the pearl will be revealed. So in 10 years, I think right. you really might have something here. Well, that's the thing is I'm sick of people over 30 using the jokes of like the horrible things that their body does to them. Like I'm sick of seeing 32-year-olds be like, oh my God, when I turned 30, that's when I started waking up with back pain and neck pain and noggin pain and 
I couldn't think straight anymore and I couldn't drink anymore because I just got too hungover. And it's like, I don't know, right now, I feel like I work out most days and don't feel a lot of soreness or body achiness. I do believe you wouldn't know it if you felt it. I do think that there is a possible mm-hmm. that like everything in your body hurts all the time and you just like lie to yourself. It's possible. It's possible. <laughs> but continue. But I also feel like I wake up feeling pretty fine every single day. And so will I next week suddenly feel unfine? Like, what is this weird obsession we have with crossing the threshold of 30? And then I feel like there's a lot of stuff growing up of when I'm 30, I want. Like Forbes says they're 30 under 30, which I'm now officially just about ineligible for. Unless you guys want to throw me in (laughs) just under the wire. I just feel like... 30 is this like insane number that we've created this threshold for. Like right now, I have a friend who just got engaged today. Like a lot of people are really. And it's her 30th birthday, right? Yeah. A lot wow. He really pushed it as far as he could. Under the barbed wire. But I feel like, you know, I'm at a place in my life where I don't really have a steady job. I am in the biggest lack of relationship I've been in in years. I also, though, feel like I'm having a lot of fun and I feel like this podcast is really fun and I feel like I'm learning, growing. I'm also deeply out of touch with every emotion I've ever had. So I could be on the brink of an absolute meltdown bigger than the meltdowns we've seen before. But I also think, I don't know, things are going kind of fine and maybe 30 is just another day in the calendar. I definitely think it is a number on the calendar. I do think it is a good time to take stock and I do think you recognizing that you might be out of touch with your emotions, that's a good thing for you to recognize, I think. Would you ever go to therapy to set yourself up for success for the next decade? Okay, so right now I don't have health insurance. Okay, so not now. (laughs) I am going into 30, the time that people say their bones turn to juice without (laughs) health insurance. (laughs) My whole body turns into one of those icy pops. (laughs) You got to keep it cold. Otherwise, I liquefy. (laughs) I think you'll be okay. I mean, obviously, the rest is still unwritten. And I also saw this TikTok that says actually physically your body starts to fall apart at 32. So you do have like two more years to hit your stride, hit your peak. That's the thing is I do still feel like I'm on the upward slope of my peakingness. So anyway, Claire, what would you call your memoir this week? God, green lights. (laughs) (laughs) That's already a memoir. To take a page out of McConaughey's book. It's called Green Lights. And specifically, he has a page called Turn the Page. And that's what I'm doing. You guys, at the time that this podcast drops, Tuesday, June 2nd, it will be the day that I quit my job. Oh. I can't get too into it, obviously. Should you play this podcast for them instead of walking in and quitting your job? I don't know that there is a sound system at the office, so I think I'd have to put it on my phone. (laughs) And put it in a cup to amplify. And then also, you know, the guys I have to quit to, they have offices. So then I would have to put the phone in the cup and the cup in their office and then hit play (laughs) and then watch them get through your week. (laughs) And then we'll get to my week. And then I'll go, oh, this is the important part. It's like when you show your friend a YouTube video and you're like, it's almost fun. It's almost the funny part. That's not the funny. It's coming. Just hang on. Hang on. You're June 2nd. That's today. So no, I don't think that's the best idea. I will say (laughs) on the Patreon, I have been getting into the drama that has led to this decision and I will get into the fallout or the fall up I do believe this will fall up me too I believe you're going to be tripping uphill to the top Mount Everest where it's chilly enough for my juice bones 
basically what happened was this. As you guys who have been listening know, I've been very unhappy and this has been a long time coming. And basically I thought it'd be a longer time coming. And then the quit date got sooner and sooner and sooner. And I don't want to say it's all Mr. McConaughey is doing, but this is a dumbest shit book that really fell into my lap at the exact right time. And it is because of this book that I quit. It's stupid advice, but it was what I wanted to hear because I knew in my heart that I was ready to go. And his whole thing is that you just have to fucking do it like you can't stay stagnant and he has this section called turn the page and so if you're at a point in your life where you're unhappy or you feel stuck you just gotta turn the page on your life and I was like yeah I do so I've decided I'm done waiting I'll get into all of like the numbers detail which I do think is like interesting because I did have to like econ it where I'm like how many days of misery is worth how much money and I just got to the point where I was like no more days of misery and also I'm investing in me I do think that this time yes. and this energy and I hate to be this person but I am like I think going fearlessly into the next chapter of my life is actually going to be financially more helpful and lifestyle more helpful than whatever amount of money. Because I think the money could have saved me for however many months, but at the end of the day, it would have still run out. But I think an attitude of success and an attitude of believing in myself and like confidence will set me up for so much success in the future. And it is an investment in my soul and in me. Okay, do you know what? No edits, but I want you to re-say that part without apologizing at the beginning for it sounding cringe because if you're going to go fearlessly into the future with confidence, you can't apologize for being fearless and with confidence. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for saying that. I believe (laughs) that money is not what will get me the career I want, that believing in myself will get the career I want. So I'm doing what I want. I'm taking the jump. I don't need permission. I'm not getting my ducks in a row. I know it's going to work out. So it's going to work out because I will make it work out. Yeah. I will say, however, if you have not rate, reviewed, subscribed, I'd really like that right now because I am at quite an uncertain time in my life and I believe in myself and I believe in you guys and I believe that you will subscribe to the Patreon and I believe that you guys will tell your friends and tag this podcast because if this podcast was going to take off at any point and it's been taken off and we appreciate your support but I would love for it to take off more now than ever because I do not have health (laughs) care. I do think that there is this opportunity to be scared. You're, you know, emerging into unemployment. I'm emerging into my 30s. Both are very similar in that they're frowned upon by society. (laughs) Anyway, I think it's time to move on to the book, the book that brought us so much change in our life, so many green lights in our life. I'm so excited for this episode because we have an incredible guest that's going to come in and talk about her experience. This is the audio book at the end of this. Her name is Ali Mikofsky. She's an amazing comic out in LA. She's been on Joe Rogan's podcast. It's going to be a lot of fun. But first, Ashley. Yes. What did you know of this man, Mr. Matthew? Matthew McConaughey. We'll call him Sir Matthew McConaughey because I do think he deserves to be knighted for the change he's brought forth. I would call him brother Matthew McConaughey. I don't like that. But I feel like he thinks of himself as the soul of the earth and that we're all connected. He has a real God complex. I'll tell you that. He's both God and Mother Gaia. I (laughs) do feel like he was birthed from the earth. The rest of us are just skin and bones, but he's a man made of the cosmos. What did you know about him? What did I know about him? Okay, so what I knew, I didn't know very much about his personal life. I knew that he was like a Texas-y kind of Southern gent, a real like man's man, whiskey, cars, motorcycles, blah, blah, blah. And I knew that he was the star of some of the greatest films ever made to this day. Could you list those? Fool's Gold. (laughs) Other movies by McConk? How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days is an excellent movie. I agree. The Wedding Planner 
is not so good, but I think taught us a lot of important lessons. About like chocolate M&Ms being very healthy. Yeah, exactly. That stuck with me longer than the plot. I know. We rewatched it recently, unrelated to reading Matthew McConaughey's book. And my God, does that plot not hold up? Anyway, I don't really know what else he's been in, but I did know him as a handsome surfer from Texas, surfing the waves of, I don't know, I guess they have like highways with pretty high speed limits. So that's why he got good at surfing. Surfing the waves of oil rigs. (laughs) Oh, I know he invented van life. Claire, what did you know about Matthew McConaughey pre-book? I think a lot like what you knew. I just generally knew the idea and the energy of him, which was he was like this rom-com kind of golden boy who... He wasn't pretty. He didn't dust his shoes, but uh, but he was pretty in that he he's beautiful in his imperfections. Yeah, like he's literally pretty, but he's not polished. And yeah, you know he was shirtless on the beach. He's the kind of guy who got fit just running with his dog and cutting wood for the fire. He and- has that drawl that everybody knows exactly and he also always struck me as somebody who is so dumb but doesn't think he is. He's the kind of guy who's like, I don't want to talk about. The day to day, I want to talk about life and being alive. Yes, he's one of those people that probably talks about hating small talk. And when he meets a stranger at a party, he's like, when's the last time you looked at the stars and what did they make you feel? Yeah, and I just saw this because I reread it this morning, just a brush up. But he's the kind of guy who's like, man, if you didn't own nothing and you had not a dollar to your name, you'd be really happy then. I met a woman, 17 children. They ate dirt in the house. They were happier than any A-list celebrity. And I'm like, I don't think that's true. I think that that's a myth in your head. I think they were hungry, and I think hungry people aren't happy. (laughs) But he's like one of those people who's like, the thing that's stopping me from real happiness is having $22 million in the bank. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, then give it away, Matt. I'll take it. If you're listening, you can become a $22 million Patreon subscriber and we wouldn't say no. (laughs) (laughs) Should we get into the book? Oh my God, please. I want to, much like you did with Stassi, describe the book. I find it very interesting that book jacket is actually too small for the book. Much like you said, it's too big for his shoulders. Well, I think it is actually supposed to signify the exact opposite. I think it's supposed to be like the contents of this book are more important than what's on the outside. Like, don't judge a book by its cover. We're going to make the cover small so that the book can't be contained by the looks. Don't judge a book by its cover, but do look at how hard he's thinking on the cover of it. So it's called Green Lights. We need to get that out of the way right away. I actually want to discuss really quick what you thought of the overall contents of the book inside the too small jacket. Yay or nay? Yay. Yes, I agree. I just wanted to say up front before we start diving into the nitty gritty, before we start going page by page, before we just read this book aloud, audiobook style, even better than Matthew McConaughey did it himself. Um, I want to say that I really loved this book for the nonsense that it is. So he writes that this book is meant to be sort of a playbook based on his own experiences. He wants this to be advice. And I do think that's where it falls short for me because it is a very enjoyable read, but I don't think that his life experiences are necessarily applicable. I think to be the most handsome man who just happens to be in the right place at the right time quite often is not the common experience. Mm -hmm. So to make this like a playbook for just how to live, I'm like, well, I believe you, man. (laughs) What I've been saying is that much like Gigi Hadid couldn't write a book about how to become a model because she had this huge nepotism or like Kaya Gerber she doesn't actually have good advice for starting out models because she has no idea what it's like to start out he's not obviously a nepotism baby and he did grow up poor in Texas but I do think the amount of charisma and handsomeness that he has 
puts him in a league of his own. And this book would only be relevant to other blonde haired, all American, handsome, charming men, a la a Brad Pitt, maybe a George Clooney. I do believe that this is a man who has had a very charmed life, was born with an incredible disposition and outlook. And I do think a lot of it is the glasses half full. But I want to say like, the more you think the glass is half full, the more the glass is half full. And I do believe that people want to be around the person that they think is winning. So if you to your core truly do believe that you are always winning, people are going to be drawn to you and it will actually make that belief that you're winning a reality That's that you're winning. That's how I feel is I feel like this book is nonsense, but it's nonsense with such absolute confidence that it's actually an incredible book. Like I think that if he had one percent less belief in himself I would have closed this book being like I'll fucking kill you but because he is who he is I ended this book being like I want to be Matthew this book is a case study where you the reader have to do all the studying do you know what I mean like I think he thinks he's like I looked back at my life and with all of my philosophy understanding and my he thinks of himself as a real anthropologist he calls himself an amateur anthropologist yeah so he thinks he's giving you this distilled analyzed version of his life but what you actually have to do to take a, anything away from it is see it from like another level, like another bird's eye view. And in that way, there is actually good advice. You're like, why is he so successful? And he kind of gets at it. But you have to understand he was born with this. But you have to be like, what is the quality that he was born with that I can teach myself? And I think talking about leaving my job, that is what I'm trying to adopt. This idea that I'm like, I think the energy I will bring into my new life by saying I'm ready to quit my job because I know I'll make it would actually serve me better than waiting until I feel financially stable and protected and then going in because that's going in with caution. That's going in with a backup plan. And I have to say something I'm taking away from reading all of these books. The men all have this idea of I gave myself no plan B. I gave myself no backup plan. I just gave myself the option to make it. And I kind of think I have to force those circumstances yeah. upon myself. So the book is also written in a very poetic way with literal poems but also the language is very flourishy the exact way you'd expect Matthew McConaughey to write and I want to open up with this poem that ends the introduction okay the sole objective is the pursuit of the singular finish with only the arrival in sight this is what brings us together and I think it's important to notice that soul is s-o-u-l so the sole objective is the pursuit of the singular finish death with only the arrival in sight this is what brings us together. So we're all going to die. And that's why we're all the same. Yeah. And I also want to bring up that then he starts the next section with a quote from a Lincoln ad. Interesting. So that's the width of depth here. Yeah. Sometimes he pulls quotes from the Lincoln ads. And then sometimes he says gibberish that does technically have a meaning. It's a lot of synonyms. A lot, a of, lot of synonyms. He loves to make every sentence longer. One quote that I think is really funny is he talks about recalling all of his past memories and he goes, I laughed, I cried, I realized I had remembered more than I expected and forgot less. Well, let me tell you something. If he had not become a successful actor, he would have had a huge career at BuzzFeed because the man loves a list. <laughs> Everything is a list. I'm just going to read. So the book is called Green Lights and the first chapter is what's a green light? Green lights mean go, advance, carry on, continue. They say proceed. In our lives, they are an affirmation of our way. Their approval, support, praise, gifts, gas on our fire, attaboys and appetites. Their cash money, birth, springtime, health, success, joy, sustainability, innocence, and fresh starts. They're a shoeless summer. They're easy. They say yes, and they give us what we want. So the whole point of this book is that green lights are like goes. And I actually struggled a lot with figuring out exactly what a green light is. Because even though he just said 100 things, 
I was never really sure if a green light was permission or an opportunity. Green lights can be anything. And I think that's the lesson at the end of this book. Because he also says a red light could turn into a green light. Or sometimes looking back on a red light, you're like, that was actually a green light. Green lights can be anything. And after you're almost every couple of paragraphs in this book, the font is literally green and he just goes green light. So like he'll build the treehouse of his dreams. Green light. He has a son. Green light. He gets a job. Green light. I just flipped to a good one. My parents taught me that I was named my name for a reason. They taught me not to hate, to never say I can't, to never lie. Green light. What? So I don't know what a green light is, but what I took from it for my own purposes, I did think about this a lot. Like what is a green light to him? And I do think Matthew McConaughey thinks the whole point of life is taking it as a journey and going forward always. And I think the opposite of a green light is being stagnant. Yes. And, and so I do think a green light is anytime you're actively going forward. And it's interesting because I think the joke of this book is that the way he writes is very flourishy and bullshitty and it's full of nonsense words. But actually what he has done is he's taken most of the generic advice you've heard in your life and just called it something else. So when you look at the words, you're like, to call it a green light is stupid. But the idea of identity capital, which was like a TED talk I watched that did a lot for me. If you're in your 20s, check out that identity capital thing. But this idea of just like constantly taking a step forward and moving forward and never staying stagnant, never rotting in your own boredom or like wasting away and just staying comfortable. And I do think that that's what made me realize I have to quit my job because what I'm doing is just like blah even if it's a risk just like change if you're not exactly where you want to be always make a change until you get yes yeah and I do think he reframes a lot of basic advice in a way that is useful and maybe and sometimes you're like well this only works because you're Matthew McConaughey but also that's a negative thought and maybe that's not true we just haven't tried it yet so maybe it doesn't only work if you're Matthew McConaughey I just want to read this other chapter or this other paragraph in the intro that kind of sets up his other life philosophy and it is, again, just a basic philosophy that is useful and just regular ass advice that he has like rewritten to be insane. <laughs> Navigating the autobahn of life in the best possible way is about getting relative with the inevitable at the right time. The inevitability of a situation is not relative. When we accept that the outcome of a given situation is inevitable, then how we choose to deal with it is relative. We either persist and continue in our present pursuit of a desired result pivot and take a new tack to get it or concede altogether and tally one up for fate we push on call an audible or wave the white flag and live to fight another day the secret to our satisfaction lies in which of these we choose to do and when that is the art of living and that realizing that is a green light itself he says later so basically what he's saying is accept the things you can't change and change the things you can we're all gonna have shit come at us and your perspective and the way you deal with things it's all in your attitude it's all in how you handle them and that's not bad advice. That fucking is true. But when he's like relative, I had to read that six times. I was like, this is a physics textbook written by an infant. <laughs> but the thing is, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. So let's get into the chapters. Let's go through his life. It starts with a section. He sections each section out. Outlaw logic is his early life and upbringing. He was raised in Texas, pretty rural areas, it seems. And his parents had an interesting relationship. He would call it loving. And I think anybody else would call it abuse. <laughs> so they got divorced twice and married three times. Yes. And when the father died at 50, they were together. But he opens the book with this story about his dad coming home from work, his mom calling the dad fat, the dad flipping the table, the mom grabbing a knife and breaking her own nose, the dad grabbing ketchup and squirting ketchup all over her while she tries to stab him with a knife. And then it ends with them 
exhausted having sex on the ground while the kids were like hiding in the corner because their parents were flipping tables and screaming at each other and then also having sex which i think is just as fucking weird i completely agree i think it led to a really bizarre relationship with sex down the line for him he goes this is why my dad broke mom's middle finger to get it out of his face four separate times this is how my mom and dad loved each other um wow can we reread that sentence this is why my dad broke mom's middle finger to get it out of his face four separate times. Okay. We talk a lot about father forgiveness and mother anger and judgment. And I think to be like, listen, the bitch's finger had it coming four times. And then even as an adult to look back and be like, that's just their love. I understand that you could be like, these are my parents and they're flawed and you can still love them. And I think that that's something that's hard to accept, but to still be like, that was their brand of love. I think you have to say their love was not good. Their love was definitely toxic. To be married three times and divorced twice is a toxic relationship. He had two older brothers who were quite a bit older than him. He was kind of like a down the line mistake. I think he was from his parents' second marriage. The middle brother was adopted after the older brother was 10. So there's a lot of years between all three of them. Two more interesting stories from his childhood that I think explain what outlaw logic is and kind of give an insight into how he finds and defines success is he tells one story about in seventh grade, there was this poetry contest in school. So he kept writing his poem and he would show it to his mom and his mom would be like, try harder, try harder. At one point that night he comes down and looks at this poem by this woman, Ann Ashford. And it's, if all that I would want to do would be to sit and talk to you, would you listen? And the mom goes, you like that poem? And he goes, yeah. And she goes, you get it. And he goes, yeah. And she goes, and it's yours. And he's like, what? And she's like, yeah, just hand that poem in. So he hands that poem in and wins. And he's like, outlaw logic. If you understand something, you can have it. So I won. And I was just like, oh, I would call that stealing personally. And then he tells another story about winning Little Mr. Texas when he was also very young, 30 years later, looking back at the plaque and realizing he was runner up. And the mom was like, well, the kid who really did win, they were from a rich family so they could buy nicer clothes. So they stole it and you should have been the winner. So I just said you were the winner. And I do feel like, It is making your own luck and just lying. And I do think something I've learned in comedy and something we talk about all the time is fake it till you fucking make it. Yeah. He has a real fake it till you make it mentality. Like he just decided his childhood was idyllic and now he lives in an idyllic world. Yeah. He talks about how the abuse was good. He was like, yeah, I got my ass whooped and I'm glad I did because it taught me consequences. And And that's love. Trigger warning disclaimer. Don't beat your kids. It's not love. (laughs) And he talks about how his father had this whole thing about how in order to be seen as a man by your dad, you had to beat the shit out of his dad. This is a crazy thing. Earning their dad's respect. When they would get into their late teens, all of his brothers having this moment where you sort of earn your dad's respect. His oldest brother was working with his dad and sort of got into this situation where he, his dad was kind of trying to sabotage his career because he was starting to get more successful than the dad. So he just beat the shit out of the dad. And he's like, and that's the date that they became equals in my father's eyes because he knocked my dad out cold. And then he also talks about a moment where he, he has sort of an opportunity to fight his dad. Him and his friend steal a pizza from the pizza hut and they get caught and his dad's going to beat the shit out of him for it. And so his dad gets on all fours like a bear and goes, you hit me. I'll give you five to my one. You get five shots to hit me across the face to make this a fair fight. And Matthew pisses himself because he doesn't want to fight his dad yet because he's 17. And his dad's like, you fucking bitch. And he's like, I was a bitch that day and I'll never make that mistake again. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know that you should hit people. I don't think you should hit. I will say, if you're looking, whose life do I want? Ashley and Claire's or Matthew McConaughey's? Oh, I guess hit people. He also talks about earning his dad's respect by, at one point, a security guard at a bar they're at sort of, like, 
squares up to his dad. He literally put his hand on his dad's chest because they were walking out and they had to confirm that they had paid for their beers. Yeah. So Matthew McConaughey beats the shit out of the security guard and then his dad has respect for him, which I kind of viewed as a cop out. I kind of feel like Pat having to beat the shit out of the dad to become a man. If that's the test, then that's the test. You can't just beat the shit out of a stranger to get the respect. That's different. Okay, so let's talk about his more teenage years. Part two, find your frequency. So the thing that you need to know about Matthew McConaughey was he was always this hot. He was not one of those kids who got bullied growing up, except for by his own dad. <laughs> he won most handsome in high school. And he talks about having this pickup truck that he would take yeah. girls off-roading and mudding. And he picked up babes. He's like, I was getting girls left, right, and center. Then he trades in his truck for a fancy red sports car. The babes stop looking. He's like, I'm parking it three parking lots away because I don't want anyone to fuck it up. I'm cleaning it all the time. Instead of like engaging and having fun and using my car to do fun stuff, I'm now just sitting in the back and thinking it'll do all the work. And he's like, I stopped getting girls. So I traded back in for a truck. And that's when all the girls came back. And this is another extremely Matthew McConaughey story where I'm like, what you're saying is so dumb and so irrelevant. But I do think there is that grain of truth there that is helpful to people, it's like what New York hot is. You do have to figure out who you are and lean into that 100% and be fun and engaging. Everyone wants to have fun and they're always looking to who's having fun yes. to see who to follow. And if you're already having fun, then you're going to draw people. And if you're sitting there anxious about scratching your car, then you're not fun. If you're a red sports car guy, like Lord Disick needs that sports car. That's how he's getting yeah. ladies. I love a city bike. That's how I get the gents. But I feel like it is a lot about understanding who you are. And when you're true to yourself, that sounds out of frequency that really attracts people. Find your frequency. Be you and people are attracted to that. I think initially with the truck, he had just fallen into a frequency and he wasn't hyper aware of it. And so getting the sports car was sort of an awakening for him about having to deliberately be yourself and figure out what makes you magnetic and fun. And then the second thing that really taught him that lesson about his frequency was an exchange program. Ay, ay, ay. Here's the one hardship that Matthew ever cops to, and it's not his dad beating him up. It's not being poor. It's one time he went to Australia. Yes. So he agrees to this exchange program where he's going to live for a year in Australia with a host family. He goes, he meets his host family. They are not living on a sunny Australian beach. He is not sitting in the sand watching babes. He is in this random rural town with this family that is... They're just weirdos who are obsessed with England. So they have this fake English accent. They have this older son who lives with them and their girlfriend. I think like there's like learning disabilities. It's... Norval is his name. They're all very bizarre. They have this whole thing where like they're obsessed with England and they think it's their job to teach Matthew good culture, even though they're in the middle of nowhere, like they're in the boondocks. They do all this weird, bizarre stuff where they like make him kiss the son's learning disabled girlfriend on the lips and it's really freaky and he refuses to do it. They scream at him all the time for saying that he loves hamburgers. The end point is that they ask him to call them mom and dad. And, and he, he like will not call them mom and dad because he feels like he's truly losing his mind in this setting. He decides to become a vegetarian and he doesn't know what foods are vegetarian. So every day he just eats lettuce with ketchup while he sits there in their house, he's getting to know this small town and he feels completely outside of himself and lost. And so finally, he just goes and asks. After six months, he asks the Rotary Club to move him and they move him. And finally, when he leaves, after having a really good time with all of his new Rotary friends, they tell him that the whole thing was a prank and that they did specifically put him with the weirdest family in town to see how long he'd last. And they cannot believe they made it that many months. He goes, that year I found myself because I was forced to. 
I persisted. I upheld my father's integrity. I'm skipping around a little bit. And while I was going crazy, I kept telling myself that there was a lesson I was put there to learn, that there was a silver lining in all of it, that I needed to go through hell to get to the other side. And I did. We cannot fully appreciate the light without the shadows. We have to be thrown off balance to find our footing. It's better to jump than fall. And here I am. I will say if the worst thing that ever happened to you is you had like a weird vacation in Australia. Like, fuck yeah. But I do think that mentality of being like, I came out stronger. Yeah. I mean, he does credit basically his entire personality that we have today is because of this Australia trip, because he says that when he was living in Texas, when he was the hottest boy in school, mudding around in his truck, banging every babe in town, going to Australia, he's like, that's where I had to become introspective because I had nobody to talk to. I had nothing to do. Like it was the first time that he really lived inside of his own head. I guess in his mind, this was a trauma. And so it was a trauma. I do. In this section, we have one of my first absolute favorite bad poems so throughout this book it's important to know that there's all these pieces of paper and like index cards that he's taped into it they're not literally but it's like photographed that way and they have little sayings and he says he loves bumper stickers they're kind of bumper stickery sometimes they're poems he loves bumper stickers here's one the monster the future is the monster not the boogeyman under the bed the past is just something we're trying to outrun tomorrow the monster is the future the unknown the boundary is not yet crossed the challenge not yet met the potential not yet realized, the dragon not yet tamed, on a one-way collision course with no turning back. The future, the monster, is always waiting for us and always sees us a-coming. So we should lift our heads, look it in the eye, and watch it heed. What do you think that means? <laughs> <laughs> does he not love saying things a hundred times? He does love that. I want to read this last entry of Find Your Frequency. It's another handwritten note to the reader's Sometimes we find our frequency by holding on to a moral bottom line in the midst of chaos. Sometimes we find it by breaking the rules and running the red light to get home. Let's move on to part three, dirt roads and autobahns. This is where our boy becomes a man. This is where he never has to suffer again. So he goes to University of Texas, Austin, same school as my brother. He's obsessed with becoming a litigator. His whole life he thought he would become a litigator when he grew up. A little gator. <laughs> but he gets to college and less than a year in, he realizes being a little gator is not for me. He wants, to <laughs> he wants to tell stories. He wants to make films. So he calls his dad and his dad goes, if that's what you want to do, just don't half-ass it. Yes. And I do think that is like their family motto. Like, yeah. Whatever, but don't embarrass us. Go hard. I mean, he comes back to that moment with his dad over and over and over again. The fact that his dad said, do what you want, but do it well was so so important to him I'm embarrassed to say this but in improv one of the first things they teach you is like whatever decision you make commit and it will work you just can't have any doubt everybody smells your fear and he is a perfect example of he's a fucking moron but he committed <laughs> so goddamn hard that I'm quitting my job because of him I'm quitting my goddamn job because of Matthew McConaughey can I tell you a part that I found very clear and I think that you should remember that this is a very clear sentiment so one of the reasons he didn't want to become a lawyer is because there's undergrad then there's law school it's like you don't really get to become a full-fledged lawyer for a while and you're drowning in debt at first and he says I didn't want to miss my 20s preparing for the rest of my life his main motivation for not becoming a lawyer is that he was like well this will not be fun and you live in the pursuit of fun and your job is making you have your job no is fun. not fun don't forget that your main thing is that you love having fun and you don't want to miss out on the rest of your 20s i only have like 19 months left i know it's like not enough time but of course he's nothing but kind of hey so right at the gate he signs with some talent agency and in austin it's not like amazing but he gets like hand modeling jobs 
Yeah, he's doing some commercial work and shit. Six months into this, he goes to a bar where his friend bartends because he can drink for free. There's this guy, Don Phillips, there. He's partying hard. The only person who can party as hard as him is Matthew McConaughey. They want to kick him out of the bar because he's being so loud. And, and Matthew's like, I'll be loud with you. Where are we going next? Turns out this guy is in town to produce Dazed and Confused. He goes, I think he'd be great for my movie. He gets him an audition. He goes in to audition for Wooderson. And he knows this character. We've talked a lot about Matthew McConaughey over the last two weeks. We've called him an idiot a couple of times. And I think he is just the right amount of introspective idiot to be an incredible actor I've seen that movie so many times it's one of my dad's favorites and he's talking about like really knowing this character getting into the mindset to play Wooderson first of all I want to point out that he always calls his characters my man he's always trying to know his man Mm -hmm. and he goes who's my man I asked myself what's going on tonight in this scene it's their last day of school everyone's looking for a party I'd know some Spanish He's such a good actor. <laughs> I actually do think he's a good actor. Yes. Wooderson would be that guy who just like randomly knows a little bit of Spanish and has all this confidence. He makes a decision. He goes confidently with it. Yeah. He shows up to all of these auditions and he never gets the part from reading off the script. He goes in from creating a character and then improvising. And then he always improvises so good that they end up taking what he says and putting it in the script. And I do think there is a genius to that. And I also think another thing why he's just the right amount of an idiot to be a genius actor as he talks about basing the character of Wooderson yeah. off of his older brother and how when he was 11 years old, he saw his older brother sneaking a cigarette outside of school and being like, that's the coolest guy I've ever seen in my life. Wooderson is the character who famously says, that's the great thing about high school girls. I get older and they stay the same age. Yes. I think what's the genius of Matthew McConaughey here is to look at that character with love because that character doesn't think he is pathetic. I think most people would have read that character and gone, oh, this is a pathetic, skeezy character. Because it is skeezy to be 25 years old and hitting on high schoolers. But because Matthew was able to base his character off of his brother and legitimately thinking his brother is cool, he was able to come at that character with this amount of self-love and confidence that the character needed. But most people couldn't fake. I feel like if you were playing that character, you'd feel despicable. Yeah, because that is the character. That is a character who, from a younger person, a 16-year-old looking at this older guy who wants to hang out with them, thinks this guy is the coolest person on earth. And an older person looking at that guy thinks he's pathetic. But you need to be the guy who the younger people think is the coolest person in the world. And you have to play that. And he knows how because he's just this confident dummy. So he lands the role of Wooderson, obviously. And they expand the role of Wooderson. But... Just before they're about to film his scenes, his dad passes away while boning his mom. Just as he always said he would. So in that way, it's beautiful. Anyway. Um, He has a really hard time with his dad dying. However, his dad passing away right before he's about to go improvise this whole role. It had him really thoughtful about life and just keep living. It became Matthew McConaughey's whole motto. It became a Wooderson thing. It became a lifestyle. People get that tattooed all over their fucking bodies. Just keep living. L-I-V-I-N. Also, all right, all right, all right. That was improvised off the top of his head. He does have a specific genius for going in and just embodying certain types of characters. Yes. So then he decides he's going to move to L.A. And of course, this producer buddy of his now, now they're good friends, says you can come crash on my couch. But before he goes to L.A., he has another audition for a tiny role that he ends up just walking back into the office and being like, I actually want the lead role. And they were like, okay. And he just commits in the office. They're like, do it then. It's for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 opposite Renee and Zellweger. He wants to be the massacrist. And I guess he scares the bejeebus out of the receptionist. And they're like, you're so scary. You're in. And so he just gets the role. Yeah. Because they asked him, they go, do you have any ideas for who would be good for this role? And he goes, I'll let you know. I'm with a talent agency. Maybe they have some people. And then he gets in the car. He goes, me. I'm good for that role. And that's where I think we can all take a page out of Matthew's book. 
I'm powerful. I am capable. Believe in me. Why am I out here pitching other people? Who's pitching Claire? Claire. Claire has to pitch Claire. Matthew pitches Matthew. Ashley pitches Ashley. So anyway, he goes out to LA. He's sleeping on Don's couch. Yes. He finally says Donnie. Donnie baby. Donnie my friend. Donnie bear. (laughs) Matthew says, I need an agent. I'm almost out of money. Don snapped. You shut that fucking talk up right now. This town smells needy. You are done for before you even get started. You hear me? You need to be cool. You need to get the fuck out of here. Get out of town. Go to Europe anywhere. And don't come back until you're ready to not need it. Then we'll talk about an agency meeting. You hear me? And once again, like the dumbest shit I've ever heard that is so fucking true. And it's only dumb because I'm irate that it is so difficult. And like the harder I fight, the less true it is for me. Yes. It is true. Fucking salmoning the wrong way. Like we need to just not need it. I don't know how to to want it, but not need it. But and it's hard. But I do believe that like everything else, agents are trying to sniff out the next big thing. And the next big thing is cool. So if you seem desperate, you don't seem cool. So it's like this cat and mouse game that Matthew can play and I can't. And I wish I could. But I think that's spot on advice. So then he and his buddies, they go to Europe, they get out of town, they rent motorcycles, they talk to this guy and it turns out the motorcycles they want to rent and motorcycle the Autobahn, it's going to be $12,000. And they're like, oh God, we do not have $12,000. And so the guy is like, well, I'll give it to you for whatever's in your pocket right now because you young boys deserve to live your life and have an adventure. And the guy's wife is like, bitch, are you crazy? And he's like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so he gives them the motorcycles for $400. They're like Ducatis. And of course, one of them totals one of the motorcycles. They call him and he's like, but are you OK? He doesn't even think about his motorcycle. It's like, my God, I wish we lived in the 80s. He meets them out there with a tow truck, picks up the fucked up Ducati and brings them a brand new Ducati. So they finish out their six week motorcycle Audubon run and they go back to America. And guess what? Matthew is cool as shit. He immediately signs with WME. And then right at the gate, he gets angels in the outfield. He gets boys on the side. Mm -hmm. I want to read this one quote. He says, my first audition in Hollywood had gotten me a second audition that landed me the fourth lead in a major motion picture drama. So he has all these successes and then he does throw us, the reader, a little bone of a time he fucked up. So he's taking these acting classes after he gets these two movies. He's on a roll and he starts taking acting classes and he notices after he starts taking these acting classes, he stops getting roles. And he's like, they had taught me how to analyze and go in. And he's like, I think it was making me so nervous that I lost my je ne sais quoi where I went in and was confident. And I do believe that. Mm-hmm. So he stops taking the classes and decides he's just going to start winging things. So he takes this bit part in a movie called Scorpion King. And he shows up and he's like, I'm not going to read the script until two minutes before. Like he gets the gist of the film. It's like about a Mexican cartel. He's I think I know what the character would be like. I'm not even going to read the lines. I'm going to go in and do a lot like what he did with the rest. He's like, I'm going to improvise who this person is and we'll see how it goes. Anyway, he gets there two minutes before his filming starts. It turns out his character only speaks Spanish and all the lines are in Spanish and he panics and he's like, that's a good example of you do have to have the foundation down so that you can go in and feel crazy. And he's like, you have to set boundaries so that then you can be free. Yellow lights are boundaries. You got to learn the language before you can make up slang. So then, I don't know, shit just starts going really well. He learns one lesson and then shit goes really well. He becomes so super famous. Uh, There's a, a headline in the newspaper that says Matthew McConaughey saves the movies. He's in A Time to Kill. He's in everything. He's blowing up. He's all over the place. His mom's taking advantage of it. His mom's like giving a tour of his childhood bedroom on the news. And he has to sort of put up some yellow lights with her because she's really coming for his fame a little bit. And he says that they really had to like relearn their relationship because she's a bit of a fame whore. Anyway, he does have a hard time becoming famous. He does really go through a bit of an identity crisis when he no longer 
owns his own identity. I think becoming public consumption consumption yeah. is very difficult. And so he goes to a monastery. Obviously. Yes. And he talks for hours at this monk. And then yeah. the monk says one very important line. Me too. And he goes, sometimes we don't need advice. Sometimes we just need to hear that we're not the only one. Green light. So he's trying to figure himself out and he doesn't know what to do next. And then suddenly he has the first of two very important life-changing wet dreams. You guys, this book has no shame about an adult cum dream. I had a wet dream. Yes, the involuntary intercourse, hands and fellatio-free nocturnal emission of semen one has while sleeping. Rare but welcome. These lucid dreams most commonly involve a theme of sexual activity. This wet dream was Rare, not common. but welcome? <laughs> yeah, why not? A free Can orgasm. Can you imagine like waking up in a pile of your own cum and being like, hello, buddy. <laughs> You're welcome here. <laughs> McConaughey is thinking this is like the 10th free coffee after you bought nine. So what does he do when he has this wet dream? He says, well, I was dreaming of Africa, so I better go to South America. Yeah, he had a dream about the Amazon, but he thinks he's in Africa. And then he looks and figures out they're not together. So he goes down and he has this 20 day expedition where he like gets naked and does ayahuasca and acid and he sees the light and he realizes that butterflies around us are green light. So then when he comes back to to his regular life, he decides he's going to be like a little bit chiller about it all. And he just starts living in an airstream and yeah. driving around the country with him and his dog in his airstream. Yeah, for three years, he's just going from campsite to campsite. And he would schedule shoots with stops in his touring. He would schedule meetings. He would fly executives into an airport in like Utah and then drop them off in Colorado or something after driving and having a meeting for the day in the car. Then after his a couple years on the road, he moves to Austin, Texas. In Austin, he's kind of living it up. He decides he needs like a more permanent place. So he finds a little ranch in Austin and he then gets arrested for paying the bongos too loud at night. Naked. Nude. His address gets exposed on the internet. So that's when he decides to move to LA. But he had a great couple years in Austin. He really loved living there. Kind of a little step outside the spotlight. Everyone in his neighborhood was just like, oh, it's just Matthew McConaughey. So then he moved back to LA and that's where he was living in the Chateau Marmont. And this is when he got a little debaucherous. He did start living the famous guy lifestyle. He says, I wore the leathers. I rode the Thunderbird. I took a lot of showers in the daylight hours, rarely alone. I partook. I like love I partook. As just his way to be like, I was doing a lot of drugs and banging a lot of girls. <laughs> After like a year or so of absolute debauchery and being in rom-coms and kind of taking it easy, L-I-V-I-N, he is starting to feel a little bit dissatisfied with his career. And in that dissatisfaction comes another cum dream. The year is 2000 about, and the section of his life is turn the page. Yes. So with this dissatisfaction comes the cum and he decides to follow this wet dream to Africa. There, he has another spiritual awakening, you could say, in this experience. He's already famous at this point, so he does not want to be viewed as a famous guy in Africa. So he tells everyone his name is David and he is a boxer. Because he's called himself a boxer, the head fighter of this village decides that he must challenge him to a boxing match. And in this experience, he you know, wins by saying yes. They fight in a big dirt pit. He says big dirt pit a lot. He really needs to emphasize it was a big dirt pit. I have to say I skimmed the literal fight because he gives three pages of exposition to each of the 62nd rounds of the fight, which there are about three. And I just, first of all, don't believe that he 
remembers and two, don't think it matters. Oh, wait, do you know what happens before he goes to Africa again? That's when he decides to shave his head and play Van Zan. I didn't know what character that was, so I didn't know if this was really important. Yeah, me either. But the shaving of the head was important because it was his first sort of step away from the rom-com world in a long time. And at first, producers were so mad about it. But then they realized he was still handsome without hair. And so then they were like, actually, we're happy you did it. I feel like there's a lot to learn even from this example. So he shaves his head and he shows up and his head is all scraggly and weird looking because scalps are bizarre. Yeah. Most people's scalps are denty and like have a little bit of psoriasis or something. And so he shows up and the producer's horrified that their like hot leading male has an ugly ass head. But right before a big party, he goes out of his way to tan it and shave it down and make sure it looks really good and oil it up so that when he shows up, he's really handsome. And then the producer is completely proved wrong. And he's like, I'm so sorry. I love the shaved head. What he does is try to become more himself, but he doesn't try to self-sabotage. And I think a lot of people convince themselves that they're staying true to themselves when what actually they're doing is self-sabotaging themselves so what Matthew McConaughey wanted to do was he didn't want to be who he was yesterday so he made this change but he wasn't trying to ruin the movie by being an ugly dude so he went out of his way to make the change that felt true to himself the best version of himself still and I think a lot of people could learn from that lesson he didn't go in and tank the movie and look ugly in this section there's also a very important poem oh yeah superstitions The other day I went in a roadside quick mart and bought a candy bar and a beer. The total came up 666 on the register. So I paid the cashier and left a penny and the need one, take one, got one to give saucer. I think that's a poem about not chasing bad luck. Something very funny. So up top at the beginning, he does this whole list of who he is. It's in his what I remember, what I forget. And he's like, I scraped my knees. I got into college. I laughed. I cried. I pissed myself. Um, One of the things he goes, I've been handed a lot of poems I didn't remember writing. And it's just funny because then he has all these poems sprinkled throughout. But then he has that story about plagiarizing a poem. And I want to be like, I don't know. Did you forget writing it? Or maybe you just didn't write it. There is a good chance that you just found these. (laughs) So back to his life. So we get to part six. The arrow doesn't seek the target. The target draws the arrow. This is another one of those things where I was like, what a dumb collection of words that made me quit my job. (laughs) (laughs) The dumbest collection of words that had the biggest impact on me. And basically the premise here is that you have to let things come to you, but you have to become the thing you want to attract. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like you have to put yourself in a position to receive. Yes. A fly catches more honey. Wait. Mm-hmm. Honey catches bees. No. Bees make honey and a honey catches a fly. <laughs> Something about being the change you wish to see in Gandhi. <laughs> so he has another wet dream after he comes back from Africa. And in this wet dream, this is another one of his God complexier things. He sees himself as this father of many. He dreams 22 wives who each have four children. So 22 wives, 88 children, and he's 88 years old. And they're all coming to wish him a happy birthday. And he sort of has this realization that not having a traditional family could still bring him joy. He doesn't need to have the wife and the child that he originally thought he would have and so he releases this idea that he needs to kind of find this wife and settle down and with that release which was also come he goes it was a spiritual sign a message to surrender to quit trying so intentionally to find the perfect woman for me and rather concede to the natural selection process of finding her her finding me or not so I quit looking for her then she came yes right after he came so let me read this poem the arrow doesn't seek the target the target draws the arrow we must be aware of what we attract in life because it is no accident or coincidence the spider waits in his web for dinner to come yes we must chase what we want seek it out cast our lines on the water but sometimes we don't need to make things happen our souls are infinitely magnetic 
and that is good advice because I do feel like we get so caught up in the search that we forget about the journey. Okay, so then he meets his wife, and I will say the way he describes first seeing her feels a little red flaggy to me. Yeah, read what he says about her. She made an impression and a definition, which is interesting. Naughty and fundamental, young with a past, homegrown and worldly, innocent and cunning, springtime and salty, a squaw and a queen. She was no virgin, but she wasn't for rent, a mother to be. Keep going. Hold on. She wasn't selling nothing, didn't need to. She knew what she was, who she was, and she owned it. Her own element, a natural law, a proper noun, inevitable. What is that? I said to myself, I also said that. (laughs) We all said that. (laughs) What is he talking about? Okay, let's do the ones that we find most confusing. I think for me, it's springtime and salty. What's yours? Naughty and fundamental. Okay, let's say the one we think is the most problematic. One, two, three. She She was was no virgin, but she she wasn't wasn't for rent. rent. Great. Okay. (laughs) That is a weird thing to say about someone. I mean, it's not a weird thing to say. It's what every guy thinks. And I think it's like an issue that a lot of guys are like, I want a girl who can fuck, but hasn't fucked anyone else. (laughs) I also want to talk about how that proceeded. So that night they met and he asked her to come back with them and do like a post game at his house. And she was like, no, I'm a lady. But then her car got towed. So then she's like, all right, I'll come for one drink. And then afterwards, he's like, well, I'll call you a cab on the way home. Like, come for one drink and I'll get you a a chauffeur. And then, of course, he's like, luckily, there were no chauffeurs. And then I called every cab company and no cab company had a cab ready. And he's like, so I gave her a guest room. I told her she'd be perfectly safe to sleep here. And then I checked up on her three times. And every time she rebuffed me. And then in the morning, she was shooting the shit with his pals. He loved that she seemed comfortable in his house after he like snuck into her room in the night. I guess when you're Matthew McConaughey, nobody cares. So they end up together and they started traveling together. He had a movie that he was shooting out of town and he did not want to be away from her. Fool's Gold it was. My favorite film. (laughs) He didn't want to be away from her. And so she said, "Okay, I'll come with you to shoot this movie. But I want three things and he really respected that she made demands and I want to talk about her demands to travel with him for this film yeah she wanted her own bedroom her own bathroom and her own key to the house I kind of don't understand why she wouldn't have a key yes own bedroom I was like I guess that's I guess like if you wanted your own office and like you want like to have space yeah I get it and he was like I really respected that she really staked her fork in some real estate establishing independence in our relationship was so key you were renting the house yeah <laughs> she followed you to your job or she I guess just needed a crafts room is that independence and also the key thing I'm fixated on the key Claire <laughs> when he's gone from the house she just has to stay in the house god forbid she forgets coffee she just has to wait for him to come home because who will let her in the door I mean he's working on a film and she's not gonna have a key to the house bizarre weird so after that they go to costa rica and they have this little trip and he's like we were drinking wine she was looking beautiful and he goes to her what would i have to do to lose you i asked that's such a weird thing to say what is that question i'm so confused i'm like there's an infinite amount of things that you could do that would be so fucked up i'd leave but she goes oh that's easy which is i guess why they're meant for each other because i don't even know how to answer that question and she said as she turned her head to me my heart raced her eyes found mine and settled change Change. (laughs) understand so if he cheated on you if he hit you if he didn't give you the key well if that's who he is now then that's who she wants to be with 
I feel like it would have made more sense. He's like, what do I need to do to keep you forever? And she yes. said, always stay the same. Their relationship is so weird to me. And his view of relationships is obviously so fucked because of his parents. But it is. And because of his bizarre. like success that I also think he doesn't think he's famous. I think he like beat famous man syndrome by living in an RV. But he has this comment about how she was the first woman he ever wanted to take on a date, fall asleep next to or wake up next to. And I was like, so all the people you fucked for the first 40 years of your life, none of them you took on a date. You never had a girlfriend before Camilla. I get never being in love or never wanting to get married. But to say I never had someone I could have a sleepover with in 40 years. I like don't really think he had girlfriends and I don't really think he has friends. You have to be very lonely on the road. All he had is a dog. Yeah. And he just didn't care. And he just picks up and goes places so often. I think he has buddies. I think he has people that he can just shoot the shit and drink with. But I don't think he has friends. And if he doesn't, I mean, he has this whole story about being out on the road where he just tumbles into some bar in Colorado and has a great night where he gets to know everybody's story. But he doesn't actually connect with people. I think that's a really good call. Yeah. He's very good at like a best friend for the day. But I do want to read the quote about marrying Camilla, which I find very bizarre. He says, I didn't marry the woman of my dreams that night. I married the best one on earth for me. And she's a mermaid. What do you, what does that mean to you? I guess he's saying like, she's a real person and no, she's, she's a mermaid. Yeah. I don't know what he's saying. (laughs) I think he was trying to be romantic. And if you don't think about it, it's romantic. None of this really should have been thought about. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, if you don't read a single word in the book, you just soak the book. It's a beautiful book. I want to read this poem. Today I made love to my woman. No. That's the title. The poem begins, not because I wanted to right then, but because I knew I'd want to once we started. And that the walk on the beach we took afterward would be more romantic. The cocktail I made at 545 would taste better. The shrimp I seasoned would have more savor. The all-star game we watched at seven would be more exciting. The music we danced to till midnight would have more rhythm. And the conversation about life we had together sitting across the kitchen table from each other until three in the morning would be more inspiring. And it was. I don't like that. I don't really know what he means by that. Anyway, so. It's like working out, I guess. You always feel better after you worked out. So they're in a great place. And then she gets pregnant and he is over the motherfucking moon. He says fatherhood meant a man has made it in life. All, yeah, all he ever wanted to be was a dad. He didn't necessarily want to be a husband. He wanted to be a father. So she has this baby. They call the mom. The mom's like pissed because they're not married and then calls back and is like, never mind. Sorry. I also want to read the list of potential baby names. I think this mm-hmm. is very important. Matthew, Man, Medley, Igloo, Mr. Citizen, and Levi. Can you read that list again for me, please? Matthew, Man, medley, man, man, like not a woman, a man. Yeah, you man be, McConaughey. Yeah, it's like if I believed there were only two genders, they would be man and woman. Okay, next, Matthew, man, medley, igloo, medley is a girl's name. Medley is nobody's name. <laughs> Mister Citizen. That's fine. Citizen, that does not roll off the tongue like a name. Like, come here, little city. I will say, if you've prepped me with man and igloo and Mr. Citizen starts sounding good. Levi. And they went with Levi. They went with Levi because because it's a Torah version of Matthew. One of the first things he does when she gets pregnant is that he gets rid of his record company and his production company. And this is actually something I think I agree with. He goes, I had five things in my life. I had acting, my production company, my record label company, my foundation 
and his family. And he was like, I was doing all of them at a B. I need to do three of them at an A. So once I had a son, I cut out two of them. And I was like, that's fair enough. Yeah. He says he gave everybody a really good severance package. And I'm like, what was that? I'd love a number. So he shuts down those two companies. He decides to focus harder on the three other pillars. And he and his family moved back to Austin. I guess they'd been living in L.A. at that point. And he decided they wanted to be closer to family. They wanted to be a little bit out of the spotlight. They wanted to raise their kids in peace. And he decides that he needs to refocus his entire career. He wants to just fully say goodbye to rom-coms and redefine his path. So now we're in part seven. Be brave. Take the hill. I have a poem that I'd like to read from this section. I would love to hear it. He does not work for 20 months when he decides to not do rom-coms. And he has to really make this choice to embrace this desert. Mm -hmm. Selfish. When I'm rich enough to not care about the money, when a child's life is more important than my own, when my self-worth isn't reliant on the adulation of others, when I don't care anymore (laughs) to outscore my desires, I look near and within and get self-ish. This is the measure of a man's greatness when a man becomes classic. When mortal rewards are no longer enough to pay his rent, man becomes legend. Fish for yourself, selfish. That's really a lot to chew on, huh? Anyway, so basically he does this thing where he doesn't work for 20 months, but in doing so, it works. And he's like, it's scary. And the money keeps getting better. They keep desperately begging me to come back to rom-coms. I keep saying no. I'm afraid that at some point they'll stop asking. That'll mean they forgot about me. And he goes, and they do get to a point where they forget about me. But in their forgetting, I was able to rebrand. And because I wasn't on the beach shirtless anymore, I wasn't the leading man in a rom-com. People did start asking me to do good movies. And this is when he gets True Detective. And this is when he creates Dallas Buyers Club. He also was in um, The Lincoln Lawyer, which was a big movie, Killer Joe, The Paperboy, Mud. There's a lot of films that come out of this period. It does work. And I also want to talk about how he gets the Dallas Buyers Club off the ground. And he had bought the rights to that movie for a while. And he was packaged with it, which means they can't make it without him, basically. And he gets picked the director. And he had to sit on it for many years. And in this time, when he starts getting more credible in the industry, they go and make it. And I guess they just keep saying, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. We start October 1st. They didn't get the funding in place. They needed $7 million. They ended up getting $4.5 million. And they just said, fuck it. We're doing it anyway. And they just made it work. And, and he just stopped eating to get there, which was very admirable to us. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, obviously, he came out of it with, with an Oscar for Best Actor. And I just want to say two things. One, I found that very admirable. And once again, I was very impressed by it and used it on my life. Like, you can't wait for everything to get. You just have to fucking follow your heart and your dreams. I do want to say it reminds me of Zach Braff when he had his GoFundMe to raise money for a film one why couldn't Matthew McConaughey either raise funds from production companies with his connections or to fund it himself or just talk to his friends how did he not know where to get three million dollars what was the difference between what was on that page and what came out of the film that it won best actor Oscar and was like a very lauded film and not one person would put money into Matthew McConaughey it is so insane to be like I don't understand that disconnect but He believed in himself and he followed it. I find that very impressive. Me too. Anyway, so during this time, his resurgence in this new light, it was what he coined himself and he makes a very big deal out of the fact that this is a word that he made up, the reconnaissance. That is outlaw logic. That is making the truth for yourself. So basically he's in an interview and the journalist is like, oh, you're doing great. And he goes, yeah, the last journalist called it the reconnaissance. 
And the journalist goes, wow, that's pretty good. I bet that sticks. And of course, no other journalist had come up with it. He had come up with it. But that did take off. I remember the yes. reconnaissance. He was huge and everybody was saying it. And it was part of the Oscars bid. He was in True Detective. People bought into it and he invented that for himself. And I do think we could all stand to take a little bit from that. Give people the permission to love you. Yes. I love mean, yourself. Listen, the way that he frames the rest of this book, it gets a little bit God complexy again. He says, the more successful I became, the more sober I got. I liked my company so much. I didn't want to interrupt it. And it's like, that is beautiful and also narcissistic. If you go out there and start saying, I'm doing a great job, people are going to believe you and then yeah. give you the opportunity to do a great job. You have to start the rumor about yourself. The way he words everything. So he talks about more great things in his career. Instead of being like, I became a shill for these brands. He was like, I got to become a car salesman for Lincoln. I got to become the creative director for Wild Turkey. And it's like, in a, in a way. It's true. It's all about framing it. It's all about telling people that you're succeeding. And then he does show up and do a great job. He like knocks it out of the park. I think he has led an incredible life. I think he's done really incredible things. And I think the most incredible thing of all is that he calls them incredible. I actually do want to give him credit. I mean, it read quick. It was a fun read. We make fun of the writerliness of it, but it is fun to read. And also, he does cherry pick the stories that he puts in there. Yeah. Also, I do think he had a lot of sexual exploits that he could have rub load. He didn't. Even though I don't know that I love the way he thinks about women, I have to give him credit. This was not a book to make men jealous of how much sex he had. This was a book to make men jealous of how much like intellectual freedom he has. Yeah. I mean, that's why I love I Partook. I don't hate him. And I think I think it was a positive influence in my life. I think he was just the just the kick in the touche you needed. Yeah. I don't think I could ever be him. And I don't think I would like him as my friend. But. I don't think anyone likes him as their friend, but we like him as an inspiration. And now I'm so excited, you guys. Allie is such a funny comic. She's based out in L.A. She'll be in New York, I think, this June, she says. Yeah. So check her out. And here's Allie. Welcome, Allie Makovsky. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for being a Matthew McConaughey stan. (laughs) I'm so glad that you asked me to be on this podcast to discuss this book. Okay, before we even get into the book, what were your thoughts on Matthew McConaughey before you opened it? I feel like Matthew McConaughey isn't too much of like a polarizing figure. I feel like everyone's just like pretty lukewarm or stoked about him. I feel like I never hear McConaughey slander. But I didn't have any like major thoughts. Like I liked him. I thought he was cool. I thought he was like good looking, kind of a weirdo. And then I got into a quarantine relationship with a guy who's a huge McConaughey stan. And so he had the book. And then I listened to the audiobook. Before you said that your boyfriend liked McConaughey, I was like, I do think that more men might have a crush on McConaughey than women. He embodies the dream life for a man and reading this book. And I was like, this was a book written by a man for other men to read. He's a real guy's guy. <laughs> yeah. And also just really quick, what did you think of the book overall? Like a positive or negative walk away? <laughs> I honestly loved it. I feel like it's something that I would read again. Well, audiobook again. I don't think I'd have the patience to read it, but like audiobook, him reading it to me feels very special. I've heard the audiobook is transcendent, but I just don't have the attention span for an audiobook. So I feel like I needed to read it first. Like I'm not a good listener, but he like spells out stuff the way he would emphasize it in the audiobook. And I'm wondering how. You don't have to do like a full impression, but also I would love it if you did. Like, how did he say the lights 
words in the audiobook. How was that presented? Okay, so the thing that I noticed in the book is like he talks a lot about like prescriptions and subscriptions and prescribes and like all these weird McConaughey-isms that when I was looking in the book, I was like, I don't know how you would read this because I'm like, would I stop and read that and then go ahead or do I read ahead and then go back to that? When I'm driving, all of a sudden it would be like prescription and then he'd go into like what it is he was prescribing or like green that. And it's like, while I'm driving around, I'm like, I'm getting confused. Do I keep driving? (laughs) How seriously do I take this? All of a sudden he'll be telling a story and then he'll be like, when life gives you shit, you got to step in it and walk away. I think the craziest phrase in the whole book wasn't even his. It was when he went to Africa and met that musician and he was like, dry shit. It doesn't leave a smell and it doesn't leave you. I want to be wet shit. It leaves a smell. And later Matthew McConaughey was like, I was wet shit. I was leaving my smell. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm so easily swayed and persuaded. Like my brain is so small that when he said that, I was like, I need to be wet shit. Like I want to walk in your room and be wet shit. I feel like this book was such a weird mix of me being like everything he's saying is insane and then also being like, I need to be Matthew McConaughey. (laughs) You know how there's all these wellness healing girls on Instagram? I feel like he's the dude's version of that. He likes the incense. He sages the room. But like in a cool way for guys where they're like, this is very normal and chill for dudes. Speaking of the lights the red lights the green lights how do you interpret them because I will say the green lights made sense green means go but the way that the red lights would become green lights the way he yellow lights existed in this book like what does it mean oh man I feel like when things are just like so clear like when you're like going through something and you're like I don't know what to do do I stay in this apartment do I try and move somewhere Sometimes I feel like things are just so clearly like, oh, this is, you're supposed to be doing this or whatever. Like you get on to the next step and you're like, oh, I was supposed to do that. I like when he said in the book how, I forget if it was green lights or yellow lights or red lights or some kind of light. (laughs) It's easier to see when it's in the rear view mirror. When you're looking back and you're like, oh yeah, at the time it felt like a red light, but it ended up being a green light where it's like, you can only tell that the red light was a green light when you're looking back on it. Yeah, I feel like they're a lot easier to identify in hindsight. So the fact that this was like more of a memoir, I think helped the light be more visible you're looking back at your career it's like everything looks like a green light when you've been successful you're like yeah those red lights were all green it turns out it's like yeah of course they were so when he's talking about the word unbelievable he just like kind of writes it out describes what it means and how he thinks it's like a nonsense word because if something happens it is believable and you can say like marvelous and awe-inspiring and magnificent but nothing is unbelievable and the way he really like loops this word into everyone's lives is he goes a man flies a suicide jet into the world trade center the coronavirus comes hurricanes ravage fires burn enron's a scam the government lies to us our best friend lies to us we lie to ourselves. our fiance says i do our child says his first words we find a cure for cancer one day we die in peace unbelievable no it just happened you just witnessed it you did it believe it 
we you did 9-11 I like don't know <laughs> where this paragraph was every word in that paragraph I was like where is it going next here's the thing is he doesn't seem like a read it back kind of a guy like I feel like he's the type of person he's like I'm putting these genius thoughts to page and they will form something like this this is his trust in the universe is that like every line made sense my book he's a green light writer he doesn't stop he doesn't look back he keeps going were there any of the theories that really stuck with you I feel like none of the theories are very relatable to me but like the way that he grew up I feel like he romanticized it so much that I was like I want to get beat by my husband and I want to be like a fun mom who's like there's no rules just love and like acceptance and I, and I liked, like, the way that him and his brothers had to, like, grow up and fight their dad to, like, become men in his eyes. And, like, how do the parents come up with this stuff? I feel like I'm just going to be like, here's an iPhone, you're a woman. <laughs> what was your take on the Australia chapter? Because it seemed like he had one thing that he wasn't willing to romanticize, and it was this horrible experience in Australia with some freaky deek family. <laughs> I love that story so much and thought it was so insane. And I was like, I wonder if that family knows about this book. Like, I wonder if that's a true story, like how much of it is exaggerated, how much of it is real, if he had to change their names. I want to know the details about this experience because it seems so gnarly. And it seems like so much of it does feel like he's just had all these red lights and stuff. And this was like the first story where it felt like he didn't have the answer and he was like questioning himself and like what he was willing to do and who he was. And so it was honestly like kind of nice having that story of like this shitty time because I feel like all of us have been in that situation, especially like women just being in an environment where you like put up with it because you're like, I don't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. So this is like the only time in the book where I'm like, oh, this is like actually super relatable and just... (laughs) dealing with something what did you think about the ketchup and lettuce meals <laughs> it was so disgusting his like makeshift hamburger salad yeah I feel like the thing that I got out of the book which is like I don't know what special powers Matthew has but I feel like his motto is like don't live in fear just yes. show up and like you know be able to provide something like don't don't expect things just like try and put yourself into it and like be as helpful as possible and just like be a good hang and like be a good person and like just have fun and see where it takes you like don't have expectations and don't have fear but it's like I feel like everything now is so fear-based I was literally impressed by how many times he showed up for one line and then created an entire scene, like Wolf of Wall Street. And Disney Confused, he just showed up and improv so much. And I was like, I have to hand it to him. It does seem like he just shows up and commits. He was talking about towards the end of the book, like I feel like he was like very open and so like honest about stuff and whatever. But then there was one part where he talks about going back to Texas for a family emergency and he, and he never- And say what it was. Yeah, he never said what it was and I'm like, it, it just felt very odd and very like almost like fishing like when someone's telling you a story and they're like but I can't get into it and it's like but maybe you want to like what is this 
Yeah, because he said family emergency like several times when that chapter, like moving back to Texas, literally just could have been a one line thing where he's like, I realized my mom was getting older and I I love Texas so much and raising a family not in L.A. seems like a good idea. So we moved back to Texas. Like, why did we need three pages about a family emergency that he couldn't explain? Yeah, it felt really strange with the rest of the book and like the tone of the book when he describes his mom and he says she's fiercely loyal to convenience and controversy she's always had an adversarial relationship with context and consideration because they ask permission she might not be the smartest person in the room but she ain't crying what the fuck does that mean does anybody have any nice (laughs) not even the smart part i get but loyal to convenience and controversy She's always had an adversarial relationship with context and consideration because they ask permission. What does that sentence mean? I have no idea. And also it feels like whenever I'm writing my mom like another Mother's Day card, I'm like, what else do I say? Yeah. She, you are awesome. You're always there. Like, it feels like he's just said that multiple times or like he's thought about that a lot. And it's like kind of a go-to to describe his mom. And I think like, Also, it's the perfect way to describe a relationship with someone that you have a weird relationship with because he talks about how she was like talking to the press about his personal life and like being way too open and like sharing all of his personal details. So I feel like he probably still has like a weird relationship and that's kind of like a polite way of kind of digging at her. Yeah, I checked out Camilla's Instagram and I saw that like She's like going live with this website and my mother-in-law Kay at, and I'm like, wow, that bitch is like 88 and still trying to get in the game. She's still trying to get followers. I know. I'm like, I wonder how much of his personality is based off trying to be the opposite of his mom, like taking her good, but also trying to be like the opposite of that. Because I think if you grow up in a family where your mom is getting like beat, you probably have like a skewed perspective of your mom and thinking like what she does is wrong. He has this line about right after he's talking about how his mom is always trying to like cash in on his fame. And he's like, my dad would have never done that. My dad would have just been happy from the front row and not trying to like get on stage with me. And I was like, I don't know. He literally woke your brother up at 4 a.m. to win a pissing contest in front of his friends. A literal pissing contest. This does not sound like a man who, like, let things go by and didn't like to be a winner. I don't know. It just felt very, like, how nice for you that your dad is dead and now you can memorialize him as this the incredible man who beat you all to a pulp to make you better. <laughs> I don't know. It's something that I've noticed. Like people are so much more like lenient towards their fathers. And I we think talk like, about this all the time. I have a joke about it where it's like everyone calls their mom crazy, but like never once has anyone said their dad is crazy. They'll just be like, my dad loves gambling and starting second families. Like, yeah. <laughs> And I think especially since he's like Southern and from Texas, like it's definitely like the classic patriarchal family where it's like, the dad is the best and like the dad does know things and like you learn from the dad. He's the one who you like listen to and obey. And and he has I- such a strange relationship with manliness. I think it really has to do with the way he views his parents. And I, 
it's obviously instilled from his parents, but then it reflects back on the way that he just like idolizes his dad. Like, I also you know, just literally want to point out his idea that his dad would have been such a great appreciator of his success when literally he tells that story about how his dad got his brother a job. And then when his brother started doing better than his dad, he tried to like sabotage him and beat the shit out of him. You have the proof right there that your dad isn't all about your success. Your dad is all about maintaining order. But also I was going to say the dad was also an opportunity chaser. Like the dad didn't really have like one steady career the whole time. The dad moved them all around across Texas to go where the money was. The dad tried to sue over Matthew McConaughey's face. Yeah, Matthew McConaughey got that really bad acne from oil of mink oil. And the dad was like so excited to make money off the lawsuit. Yeah. So like you don't think your dad would be selling your tissues on eBay? I mean, you're literally like the sheets that you keep coming in and chasing your dreams. Your dad would make a pretty penny off of those, baby. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, of course, your dad is going to be like supportive and happy of you if you were the one who's like making the money and like letting him come along for that journey. Do you have any final thoughts on our man? He says, I have a lot of proof that the world is conspiring to make me happy which is crazy, but also like, I think it's just one of those things where it's like, you just have to believe that in order for your life to become like Matthew McConaughey's. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very easy to be like, listen, all of these things have gone horribly wrong and that's why I'm like sad all the time. Or you can be like, okay, my life is actually good and these are all the things that came together to make it good. It's the opposite of a negative feedback loop. I do believe that when you're looking for the good, you see the good. I literally just opened to this page where he said he wants he was ready to take I would if I could to I can and I am. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. He just like stopped believing that he couldn't accomplish it. And it worked. And I don't know that it would work for everyone. But we also don't have proof because I don't know that many positive people who are failures mm-hmm. because when you keep failing, you stop being positive. <laughs> I also feel like this book is preceding his run for some sort of political candidacy in Texas. I 100% agree. And I, I have that fear. 100% agree with that. And it really makes me nervous because I finished this book being like, he has the perfect mix of like arrogance and perspective to be honestly, that's why I think he's so good at acting is because he really likes to look deep. And I don't know how good he has how good he is at having like a well-rounded view. And so it makes him such a good actor and such a bad representative of people. He's the kind of person where you have a conversation with them and you're engrossed in every word and you're just like, oh my God, yes, yes, yes. And then the minute you walk away and go home and like review what was said in your head, you're like, wait, that was a crazy person. (laughs) I remember listening to him on Joe Rogan's podcast and the whole time I'm like, is he about to announce that he's like running for governor or mayor or like eventually president? I could see president. I could see governor and president. It could happen. And I don't even think it would be the worst thing because I do believe he could have like a taco Tuesday in his backyard, make his famous homemade margaritas and really bring unity to this country for a minute. (laughs) He would definitely not be the worst mayor, governor, president we've ever had or anyone's ever had. But I do think it would be the worst choice for him. Like, I do think it would be a terrible career choice. I think that all the fun he's having now being like the yes man, the rom-com hero, the, you know, Dallas Buyers Club AIDS guy, it's like all been a fun ride for him. And when you're in office, people aren't as quick to just love you. We started this podcast talking about how I feel like he's 
the least polarizing person. And I feel like being in that position would instantly make you like super polarizing. His relationship with sex is really interesting to me. I want to know what boning him is like. Yeah, I honestly think bad. It's like not what I would like, I don't think. Probably really enthusiastic. He probably has a lot of beliefs and just like random kinks that he's not afraid to just like throw out at the drop of a hat. And it's like, you've got to say those out loud first. (laughs) I feel like he was probably like a a cool fuck boy. Like he left it on good terms for him. But the girl was like, yeah, I guess that's fine. But I still feel hurt. I feel like you would know what you're getting into with him, though. I feel like you'd probably meet him on the beach. He'd go back for shrimp on the Barbie. And then you'd know... Mm, I kind of disagree. I think he'd be the kind of guy that like looks into your eyes all night and like tells you that you're like incredible. And then in the morning, he's like, we just had the most romantic 24 hours and I cannot wait to hold, cherish it in my heart forever. Don't tell me your name. Don't give me your number. I don't want to know. We have to. And then he like leaves and you're just like, I thought we were going to get married. (laughs) Yeah. And then, but then you're like, I guess we did have the most romantic 24 hours and we shouldn't tarnish it by going on a date and telling each other our names, even though I know his name. You're yeah. He's right. <laughs> I don't want to argue with him because it'll ruin the romance of the moment. He like gaslights you in the most positive way. Yes. I do believe you that then the next day you're telling your friend at brunch and you're like, I had the most incredible, intense, passionate connection with this man. We are never going to see each other, but it, that's for the best. And I wanted that. And then as yeah. you said, you're like, maybe I didn't want that. <laughs> yeah. He's a cult leader. He's a good one, too. That is so he could run a cult. He shouldn't run for government. He should just start his own cult and then secede. I'm joining it. God, how funny is it that when he was in um, Africa following his second wet dream, he went by David, the boxer. <laughs> What an insane thing to be like, listen, when they found out I was a boxer and they wanted me to fight the top fighter in the village, I was like, I watched a lot of WWE when I was growing up and I felt like I could take him. Or, but that's such a good example of how perspective or what he calls relative changes everything because he's like, I won that fight. He didn't. He definitely no. did not win. But the fact that they were chanting his name and that then he, the end he goes, by even saying yes to the fight, I won in that moment. And you're like, that's some real loser shit. Like a lot of people would have said I lost because I didn't win. But instead he goes by even playing the game. It's very participation trophy, but taken and then like shrouded in this weird tough masculinity that makes it not for like libtard losers. It makes it for like cool weed smoking campers. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, listen, only one of us was drenched in blood. It was me, but we were both winners. (laughs) But we both fought and showed up, and that's what counts. Yeah. God, I fucking love Matthew McConaughey. Anyway, does any do you guys have any final thoughts before we wrap her up? Before we just keep living? I loved it. I loved it. I think everyone should read it. And I also think if you have the ability to to listen to the audiobook. Well, thank you so much, Allie. Where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram at notallymac and um, you can listen to my podcast Resting Bitch on all platforms. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you guys. All right, you guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget, we've got our Patreon for more. We've got the worm and unhinged shirts and follow us everywhere, right? Review, subscribe. Thanks. Love you.